Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Sola. Today we'll be discussing the presidential elections in France, which will be a bruising heavyweight fight, a rematch, between the current centrist president, Emmanuel Macron, and his challenger, the far-right French nationalist, Marine Le Pen. After that, we'll discuss the recently completed re-election of Viktor Orban in Hungary. With me today to discuss the political situation in these two European countries is our longtime EU expert and Francophile, Dr. Gunter Donner. <laughs> Hi, Gunter. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So the presidential elections in France are a bit complex. There is no electoral college like in the United States. In fact, the president is directly elected by the citizens of France, thus avoiding some of the problems we see in the U.S. presidential elections. A candidate can win in the first round of the election by securing more than 50% of the votes. However, if there is no winner in the first round, the top two candidates face off in the second round where the winner takes all. And as I said before, the top two candidates after the first round on Sunday, the 10th of April, were Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. So they have two weeks, which is a short time, two weeks to campaign before the second round, which will be on the 24th of April. It is worth noting that Macron and Le Pen faced off in the last presidential election in 2017, and I think it's fair to say that Macron destroyed her. He won by 33 points, and indeed he won 20 million votes to her 10 million, so he doubled up on her, which is a trouncing. And it will be interesting to see if she does better this time, and some do suggest she might actually win, which reveals a huge change in the French electorate's attitudes towards Macron and French identity, which Marine Le Pen tries to embody in herself. I just want to give you a couple more statistics on the first round before we get started, because it's helpful to see where the other candidates placed, to see who they're going to vote for in the second round. So Macron won 27.8%, Marine Le Pen won 23.2%. Now the third place candidate nearly got into the runoff. This is the left-wing leader, Mélenchon from the party called France Unbowed at 22%. So he was only 1.2% off second place. And things would be a lot different, I think it's fair to say, if he did get that 1.2% extra, because then the runoff would be between a centrist and a pretty far-left leader rather than a centrist and a pretty far-right leader. So Mélenchon and his party have the chance to be kingmakers in the second round, the fourth place 
candidate at 7.1% was I was candidate even farther right than Le Pen by the name of Eric Samour. His his party called Reconquest. I don't know if he intentionally wanted to echo the reconquest of Spain by Catholic leaders, but it's called Reconquest, and I think there's some inbuilt anti-Islamism in that title. Anyway, he won 7.1% of the votes. So again, that's pretty important. Now, two remaining parties I want to discuss quickly, both slightly under 5%, was the traditional center-right party, the Republicans, and they only achieved 4.8%. And then there's a Green Party, like there is in many countries now, and they won 4.6%. The rest of the parties were at 3% or fewer. I want to quickly look at what might happen based on these round one results for round two. Everyone assumes that Le Pen and Zaymour, those votes will then be added together in the second round, which gives them 30.3% of the vote. Now, presumably, centrists like um, Valérie Pécresse's Republicans plus Macron's plus the Greens, if you put those three numbers together, you get 37.2% of the vote. So that gives Macron a likely seven-point advantage, but we still have about a third of the electorate to figure out. So what is Mélenchon? The left candidates, 22%. What are they going to do? He won the 18 to 34 age group, Mélenchon. So are these young people going to vote for Le Pen or Macron or not at all? And indeed, there's 10% remaining after you add up all of these, these small parties, who are they going to vote for? One final point I'd like to make about these numbers. There's been a lot of talk about a fundamental sea change, a paradigm shift in French politics. What we have now is a centrist grouping of centrist parties flanked by an extreme right and an extreme left. And indeed, the final statistic I want to share with you 53% of French voters in the first round voted for a non-centrist candidate. So the majority of the French people either voted for a far-left or a far-right candidate. That is a clear majority. So, Gunter, with that quick overview, what is your general assessment of the first round? Well, to me, it came as no, no big surprise. Macron had shown a more than... Uh, unusual degree of statesmanship during the electoral campaign leading up to the first round by not entering partly rather vulgar debates. He kept himself aloof from all that. He was very occupied with the ongoing crisis. We don't talk about the the, uh, COVID thing anymore, but now we have the war in Ukraine, which... He, uh, as the leading leading figure of the European member states for the time being, instrumentalized to be omnipresent as a statesman. His accounts are quite fair. He has relaunched France as a European power, clearly outweighing Germany. That had never happened during the reign of Angela Merkel, and we talk about a period of about 50, 16 years. And he had a very pro-European stance during the whole campaign. Uh, he got more 
votes than I would have thought. You, you just have to, to, to separate the French polit political institutions a bit from others. Everybody expects a two-round election. Another is uh, out of imagination. Um, so the two-round election being taken for granted, the thing is the first, in many cases, is used by voters either to show their disdain for existing deficiencies as they evaluate them, or to, to, to vote for a candidate of their uh, ideological preference, not necessarily the one they will vote for in the second round. As they know that all the, the votes given to the non-to-top runners of the, first, of the first round do not matter. What is very important, though, uh, and you've mentioned that when you broke down your statistics, is the fact that, indeed, the once important great parties of France, and I would like to add another one to the goalists, the goalists, or whatever they call them, they, they tend to change their names every now and then, and now coming with Madame Pécresse, once were the party of Jacques Chirac and of Sarkozy with huge majorities. They disappeared almost into oblivion with less than 5%. And that was partly due to the candidate of Madame Pécresse. Did the previous supporters of the Gaullist or Madame Pécresse's party. So did the center-right people all go farther to the right, or did some of them get captured by Macron? Uh, most of them stayed at home. I, I know uh, half a dozen. They didn't like Madame Pécresse. They still voted for Fillon five years ago, who was deeply shattered by corruption scandals during the during the campaign, and who lost, but who then made it up to 18 point whatever percentage point. So for the goalists, many stayed home. The participation was around 65%, which is rather low. So there is still a reservoir for the second round, which is considered by many to be the decisive one, decisive for the future role France will play. And this gives a bit of comfort. I am sure that, and this is just a very symbolic addendum, that many of the goalists, once voting for their own party, and not during the first round, now will go and vote for Macron. They don't like it, but they know that, economically speaking, Madame Le Pen will ruin France within half a year. What is so striking is the fate of the two once-dominating parties. The Now, what then was called the Republicans, let, 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 let us call them the goalists, because in tradition that shows where they used to stand. 4.8, nothing, and the socialists, once the strong party of the left, Mitterrand, many times president, way beyond 50, 1.8. They were devastated, devastated, and they had, of course, the completely wrong choice of candidate. So many traditional voters of the traditionally left socialist party now voted for what is known here as uh, as uh, La France Insoumise, France Unbound, which isn't a party in itself. It's, a, it's an amalgamation of various groups with a huge, a horn of plenty of ideologies to unite. And it took them just 
a couple of weeks before the election, they decided that Mélenchon was going to run for them. There was an, an, another lady who wanted it from a different camp of this of this movement. France unbowed couldn't be called a party, not to German, British, or American standards, but it's a movement. It's a movement that carries much to to address money, inasmuch as it doesn't expect to, to hold governmental uh, responsibilities. They add evidently contradicting demands to their portfolio, but that makes them quite interesting to them and attractive to vote for for those who want to utter protest, and that is a very French behaviour: the vote to protest against what has a hip, what has happened until that until now. And Macron, of course, is a, a realist, an economic realist. He wanted to modernize France and modernization of rather encrusted economy and social structure, structures won't be shared happily by anybody. Uh, so that is just the my, my quick understanding of what happens now. And what is interesting, the, 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 the fortnight now, um, the time window for winning a majority the majority of, to me, to my reading and understanding Macron, will be composed of traditional Macron voters, anybody who doesn't like the idea of having France ruled by Madame Le Pen and her openly extreme right views, as long as they are not as opposed to whoever is not like themselves, that they prefer rather to have Macron, uh, Le Pen to Macron, who is certainly more efficient. So a left radical in France, a truly left radical, an ideologist would say everything should rather go down down in ruins and then it will reflourish as eco-socialist, woke paradise of whatever nature later to be discussed. The thing is it first has to be destroyed. Uh, that has been the case in French history every now and then. But these people aside, they are a clear minority. Many even left-wing people thinking will say, stop, we are at the crossroads. Shall we vote for the person supporting fa clearly fascist views, entertaining close relationships with Putin, uh, ha having even taken money from, from unknown and undeclared sources close to the Russian state? So uh, Le Pen clearly to, to many is not the type of candidate they would vote for in terms of they share her ideology. But it, you're right, the idea that many democratic parties and that the democratic opposition has, has disappeared. And that shows that there is a, there is a danger, a potential danger and a trap in the offing. A democracy lives from the rivalry of opinion. Uh, at best discussed in a productive and constructive fashion, not in terms of uh, civil war-like hatred and disinformation. But we all know that these days, and I put many, uh, uh, many factors due that have caused this dilemma uh, to, the, uh, to, to the ease with which you now can manipulate and brainwash people, especially those who are not too educated. This is a clear danger, and the message is that democracy um, has probably never been 
shattered from the inside that much from the inside in an unviolent manner. Democracies have been overthrown with guns. At gunpoint, this is very easy. But uh, historically speaking, the new guns are disinformation, hatred, uh, ideology, hatred-based ideologies, and things you, <laughs> if I may say so, you're quite familiar with in the U.S. and you've been, you've become familiar with uh, during the last years. This is not exclusively part of the U.S., of course. That happens in France, a very old, classic democracy. And uh, radicalism, political radicalism, is at the moment gaining ground among the dissatisfied. And, and that is, of course, a question. And uh, that will be a huge challenge for Macron once his majority has been, uh, has been achieved. Uh, how to reintegrate people and... I'm not too optimistic that uh, this is a quick process. This won't be easy. You've kind of jumped ahead of yourself a little bit by predicting a Macron majority. I just want to take a step back a little bit mm -hmm. here to focus on some clever political moves that Le Pen has made or has capitalized on in order to create the perception that she is not in fact, as far-right as many claim she is. And, of course, she has been sanitizing her image for many, many years now. So there has been the emergence of a figure called Eric Zemmour farther to the right of Le Pen. So by the fact that there is someone even farther to the right than Le Pen, she can basically say, you used to call me a the farthest right there is. Well, look at Eric Zemmour. He got 7% of the vote, and he's even more outrageous than I am. So she looks fairly moderate now. I mean, that's one key way that the, the political landscape has shifted. Secondly, she very much speaks to the grievances of the working class, the people who you were discussing, mm -hmm. the people who have lost out on globalization and EU integration. Indeed, one of her big policy plans is to lower the tax on gas by quite a bit, which certainly will speak to many of the rural voters who uh, protested against Macron for his gas policies. So what do you make of those, those two efforts she has taken in order to basically sanitize her image even more and to speak to the, the disaffected in France? She's been clearly doing this for the last decade. After she started to oust her father, who was synonymous with extreme right, yes, pro-Nazi stances, her name stands for something in France which uh, cannot be washed away or washed off. As Zemmour, as a newcomer, doesn't really address the same voter groups than she does. Partly, yes, but partly he addresses extreme right-wing, culturally and religiously conservative right-wingers of the upper classes. He is far less socialist, in inverted commas, and interested in whatever lower class is happiness than she pretends to be. But if you look closer at her party program, what, what stands out is the next to complete absence of what she's going to do once in power. 
And indeed, the test election for all this was in regional municipalities where you have a much closer contact to citizens' everyday lives. And there they lost. She lost. And that, that's not too, too, too long ago. I don't really believe that Le Pen addresses more than dissatisfied people. Of course she can win over people by promising, I lower your gas, your taxes on, on petrol. When promising lower taxes on gas, of course that is populism, that is probably right. Macron has already done it, and he will continue probably. But the thing is, she doesn't even have uh, a clear strategic idea and how to what to do once in power. So there is no economic idea of of her movement, of her party. The thing is, we are anti this, we are anti that, we will leave the EU, we will kick out all foreigners. But what will we do then? So, of course, she dishes out empty promises, and she's probably she will be effective with it. But the, the again, let me come back to the, the figure of Zemmour is a newcomer in, in, in this race. There hasn't been a second extreme right candidate of this nature. If you go back many, many decades, you will find such people, even one wishing to restore the monarchy in France, addressing a different set of voters, completely different set of voters, as does uh, Madame Le Pen. Zemmour has already asked his, his voters to support her. Some will, others won't. Because to many of Zemmour's supporters, she might be too vulgar, she might be too much engaged in whatever uh, they are not interested in. The Zemmour movement has no, no guiding images in French political history. It's a rather newcomer, and it's 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 been it, it was knitted around the figure of this TV once uh, TV personality Zemmour, quite popular as he was and quite eloquent, who then t- became a political radical uh, in, in a very yeah strange way. And uh, if you if you listen to his to his language, his language is um, not the language she would use. To, to reach an, out to anybody. But they agree. The common denominator clearly is racist convictions, which is very strange in the case of Zemmour, who is of Jewish origin, but racist convictions and an idea of that they have a right to define who is a proper Frenchman, who isn't. That is their common denominator. And of course, some of the Zemmour voters will vote for Le Pen. What is very interesting is what will the Mélenchon voters do? Mélenchon hates Macron because Macron is the president of the rich, as he has frequently stated. So he's, it's impossible for him and for his movement to say, let's fight um, the, the extreme right, vote for Macron. Many of his movement would support, as I've said previously, let Le Pen ruin the country and then we built it up from scratch. But many uh, Mélenchon voters are of an extremely diverse basis. Uh, so there are realists and there are those cherishing pipe dreams who will clearly abstain. But others will see that there's a huge danger for France to, 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 to move to the extreme right, and they will probably support Macron. 
The Mélenchon uh, movement is so heterogeneously composed of left-wing populism, democratic socialism, eco-socialism. It's based on Eurosceptism. So the Eurosceptics from the Mélenchon camp may vote for Le Pen. That's it. at least the, the idea of many French people I've been talking to recently, because they hate Europe that much that they would support anybody fighting against Europe. Of course, the current situation, given the, the war in Ukraine and the, the final proof having been delivered that Europe has to be strong and even stronger uh, in the future, given the dangers the world is uh, now confronted with, might strengthen the Macron camp a bit. Le Pen had huge difficulties in erasing her once very close relations to Putin. She even had to scrap a brochure she was about to, to deliver, showing her with the uh, with the Russian uh, dictator. And uh, that, of course, now cannot be to her favor. That, that is quite interesting. The socialists, many socialists have abstained. Socialists not voting Mélenchon for whatever reason. He's a very strange person and many people see him as a strange person in France. And if you look at Mélenchon has made now 22%. Five years ago he had 19.5. But the socialists were much stronger. So many of these people have evidently stayed home. And quite a number of those will go to the second round of the election. Grudgingly, but they will. So I'm rather optimistic as uh, the Macron victory is concerned. I can see you've, you've said a number of times that you're optimistic, and that is some good news. But there are still some drifting away from the center in French politics. And you made a number of points which I would like to encapsulate in the phrase, the French culture wars. Mm -hmm. So you said that Zemmour and Le Pen want to be allowed to define what is French and what is not French, and they have specific mm -hmm. hot-button topics like banning the the Muslim headscarf in all in all public areas entirely, which is symbolic of, of this idea that French women should not cover their heads. So what, what, are, what are the important key features of the French culture wars? Is it just anti-immigrant? Is it just anti-Islam? Is it just anti-EU? I mean, how do these all, all come together? Well, I think if you look at the two movements, Le Pen and Zemmour, Zemmour is clearly anti-Islam, far more than anti-black immigration. He hasn't really mentioned it, unless he could bring it up in terms of con context with Islam. Zemmour is fanatically anti-Islam, which is probably helpful, in, in inverted commas, as Islam plays a huge role in France, given the French colonial history. And the rather large part of the population uh, with, a, with an Islamic background, he has never specified uh, how, he would, how he would handle this legally, if ever he came to power. Uh, and what what would he do? Would he kick them all out? Would he deprive them of their French nationality with all their rights? And where would that lead to? So it's more that he plays on the on the string of hatred of people being different from the one he wants to win over, and that is a very classical feature for extreme right movements. They need they need centres for the hate ideology they wish to preach. 
there is very little logic in what they come up with. They have no convincing schemes how to unite economic growth, social security, and a better environment. All this is far too complicated. They say this is the foe and this guy is responsible. It's a scapegoat politics. It's an, it's very old. It was the part of the Russian pogroms during the um, reigns of the Tsars. It was part of the anti-Jewish hatred by right-wing parties in the 20s, culminating in the German Nazis' uh, uh, Holocaust. It's all the idea, this is a scapegoat. We can at least make us believe we could keep apart from others by sight, which in many cases is nonsense, as we all know. But hate sells well, probably. Uh, not that much for Zemmour. Zemmour must have been very, very disillusioned with this result. Le Pen, she's more, she's more of a pro. Uh, she's less eloquent than Zemmour, but she's more of a pro. And so she has at least identified weak points in French society. That is that many lower middle class people are threatened by a social decline and have been so during the last two decades. The glorious days of the French welfare state based on redistributing public uh, wealth during the, the 70s is clearly over. France still has a very, very complex social state, which is extremely ex expensive. The French economy has indeed gained a bit, of, a little bit of ground under Macron in spite of the pandemic. So if we look back, where was the French economy under his predecessor, the socialist Hollande? It was, it was uh, ridiculous. It was uh, a, a, a disaster. So Macron has repaired it, but the thing is, France is very, very difficult to reform. And whatever you change, you raise opponents and of a very irrational nature. So governing France is one probably one of the most difficult tasks ahead of a politician. This will, might become more, more, more so in the future. As you've rightly pointed out, the centrists are, have disappeared from the political scene virtually. They may come back. There is a parliamentary election in the offing and normally a presidential election is not mirrored in its result in the parliamentary election. So I wouldn't be too surprised if the Gaullists come out in a better fashion out of the of the forthcoming election for the Assemblée Nationale. Not very strong, but probably better than they, they did with, with the um, Madame Pécresse as running for presidency. This shows that we might see a clear win of Macron for president, but what we will then see is we will how will they form a government? Uh, I'm not convinced that socialists and gaullists are completely off the scene as far as the the parliament is concerned. For the president, which is a very it's it's, it's an election clearly focused on the personality or on the hate ideology, Pécresse and Hidalgo, the two candidates, were clearly the wrong choice, and so they had to lose. Their party still is there. And the, the thing, we'll, we will see what comes out uh, of the uh, parliamentary election and how Macron will then form a government with uh, a prime minister.
And that has always been a very interesting thing in French politics. If the president is from one party and the prime minister from another, they have a term for this, which, which is uh, cohabitation, cohabitation. It can be very difficult, but the great constitutional powers of the president clearly will show through. Macron being something of a political shapeshifter, striding the yes. center, as is his tendency, it's not such a bad thing for him to appeal to, say, a center-right parliament then, or even a center-left parliament, because he can make compromises where he needs to and Indeed. and make marginal improvements. And I think that might be one of his strengths as the political shapeshifter that he is. He does not need to be completely wedded to any single policy. Uh, well, and that speaks... Uh, his history, history as a politician, speaks in favour of that. He once was a member of a socialist government, which then he abandoned when Hollande just left recent policies behind for good. And Macron's party was virtually ha had been created from scratch out of nothing. In fact, they were all dissidents from the Socialist Party, the Gaullist Party, uh, liberal ideas were, and people interested in a modernization of France. That, that goes with the name La France en Marche, France on the road. And the idea of modernization, when Macron appeared as, and he appeared just like a bolt out of the blue sky, and totally reversed the political landscape, clearly formed by the traditional big parties, the Gaullists and the Socialists, but these had lost the public support and the majority of the public support for good due to scandals around Sarkozy and Hollande clearly being completely unfit for his job. Huge scandals of his various governments and ministers. So Hollande ruined the Socialist Party to a certain degree. And the second thing now was the, the picking of Madame Hidalgo, the, um, the mayor of Paris, but clearly not the right candidate for presidency. Indeed, Macron is an ideology broker of, 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 of high quality, and he's, he's improved his skills on the job enormously. When he came in office way back, he was a fresher, he was a newcomer. He had a business career, he had a, a very mild career as a, as a, as a min, cabinet minister in a, in a socialist-dominated government then left this post, uh, he's really transformed society. In, in, indeed, if you look at all the, the votes voting for him, they have come from different traditional French parties and corners. So this, this is a clear phenomenon. I couldn't imagine a new party in Germany or in, in England. I couldn't imagine such a party out of, out of nowhere to gain such a majority and to hold it. And they are holding on to it. It's probably less dramatic than five years ago, but, but it's still there. And that shows that there is an, a maelstrom, uh, so to speak, of French desire for modernization of society. Clearly, any approach to modernize is change, and change may be frightening for some people. So change 
may start or trigger off uh, sentiments of uh, aversion, especially irrational ones. The thing is, the French were almost absorbed by the public debt 20 years ago, and that hasn't improved massively. The economy has to improve. And of course, and Macron has realized that, this is only possible through a firm integration into the European economic and social project. So anything that will isolate and erect uh, border fences uh, won't help. No way. So just to summarize, you've predicted several times quite strongly a Macron victory. Yep. People who have not voted in the in the first round will come out and vote in the second. And, and the, mm -hmm. the sheer fear of a Le Pen presidency will make a number of moderates who voted for other candidates in the first round choose Macron as the safe bet. So we will see if that comes to pass in about a week or so. So let's move on to our next subject and just briefly discuss Hungary. So parliamentary elections were held in Hungary on the 3rd of April. And the strongman politician Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party won a large majority of seats, about 135 to the opposition, 63. So two questions about this, Gunter. What does Orban's victory mean for Hungary's relationship with the EU? Question one. What does this mean for Hungary and Hungary's relationship with the EU? Question two, what does it mean for Hungary's relationship with Russia and how that's going to affect Russian relations with the EU as well as the war in Ukraine? So just some thoughts on Orban. Orban's been a, a problematic figure throughout his reign. He once started as a rather left-wing opportunist. That was in the early 90s. Um, I managed to meet him then. Uh, he's changed completely to become a right-wing, would-be, uh, controlled demo democratic ruler. Controlled democracy is his word for whatever type of reduction of rule of law and public and individual freedom may uh, produce. Uh, that, he, that he won this election isn't a big surprise. If you look at the opposition, the opposition in his, itself with a uh, a motley array of six parties. It's it's history already. They they dissolved their alliance. It's been a motley array of six parties, as far apart ideologically as eco-socialist Greens, and the a party called Jobbik, which is the Hungarian word for better, which is clearly extreme extreme right, or to say to to put it bluntly, fascist. So this alliance in itself was just united by one idea we have to get rid of Orban and his cronies and his family clans lining their pockets now the, the this opposition is to smithereens they uh, their candidate has already left the scene and he will now create his own party or form it or whatever so that wasn't a big surprise uh, Orban is an opportunist playing to the lower 60% of the Hungarian population, and you'll find very many low-income people in Hungary, especially in the rural areas, offering them uh, a welfare state, which is at least there, and better than it used to be 15 years ago, or more generous, 
which is not counterfinanced by economic productivity, which almost exclusively is based on foreign investment. Orban is largely depending on EU, big EU trade freedoms and direct EU subsidies to whatever sector of his society. There is trouble in the office. He wants to, to celebrate his role and whatever he comes up with has, to us probably, creates the idea if he's entered world politics, which for the Hungarian leader is hard to perform. But he's just addressing his own electorate. See, I talk to Putin, the others don't. I keep Hungary out of the war, the others probably do not. On the other hand, he's depending on Russian crude material, especially gas and oil. But others are, are, are as well, and others will have to think about it. And he is trying to pose as the politi European politician still in connection with, with Putin. Putin doesn't take him seriously. He has no influence. Putin knows pretty well how weak Hungary is within the EU and beyond. Hungary is virtually sitting between the chairs. They are anti-American because there are... There is the his hate figure. Once his uh, his patron, he paid for his studies. That was Shorosh, an American Hungarian billionaire. He hates him beyond uh, description for whatever reason. Or he's created him as a hate figure, uh, a very traditional one for the extreme right. Then, and what he now has faces as a problem, and that probably goes to the second part of your question. There was the term of the so-called Visegrad alliance. Visegrad is a, is a town in, in, in this border region between the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, and Hungary, formerly the Galicia area of the Habsburg Empire. And they formed a subgroup within the EU, a subgroup of countries or member states that to one or another extent tend to prefer a rather strong right-wing stance towards certain things. So both, especially Poland and Hungary, were actively criticized for exacting government influence on the judiciary, for limiting the freedom of speech, whatever. Poland had a complete an about-face turn with the Ukrainian tragedy unfolding taking up millions of, of Ukrainian refugees and showing clemency, mercy, and the readiness to help beyond what could have ever been expected of them. Hungary does so. They take up refugees in much smaller numbers, but they block arms transports from NATO countries to the Ukraine through Hungarian territory in, in brackets what isn't necessary uh, strategically at all but they boast their neutrality with this. All this uh, Orban does to pretend to be uh, a sovereign great diplomatist the world should look at. He offered a negotiating uh, a location in Hungary uh, with the French, the Brits, uh, the Hungarians, and Putin, and the Germans, uh, the so-called Normandy format. But he he he, arranged, he tried he presented it to Putin first, not to his partners. That is just to make himself look very interesting and involved. 
what he now faces is a growing uh, isolation within Europe because the Visegrad alliance is to smithereens. That is clear. The Poles help, the Czechs send heavy armor, the Slovaks do what they can, and just the Hungarians are there, and their identity is now shattered. Nobody will now take Poland responsible for not accepting immigrants. That is impossible. On the contrary, the European Court of, Court of Justice has turned down their, their uh, complaints against a connection of rule of law and reception of EU subsidies. What that means is that the EU can push forward uh, a cutting, a severe cuts, uh, cutting Hungarian direct subsidies to the Hungarian budget because the Hungarian government violated various parts of fundamental EU values. Uh, that to uh, Orban cannot be good news. And now he's virtually making a tightrope performance between pleasing the EU in terms of accepting Ukrainian refugees and pleasing Putin in, uh, in terms of access to cheap energy. Uh, he even offered to pay in rubles. But the thing is, once EU subsidies throttled, he won't be able to pay for anything. Uh, he's in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, quite a remarkable economic crisis and direct investments from other EU countries might be reduced. The thing is, why is he so why has he been so successful? The opposition was a motley array of rather dubious characters and dubious ideologies. Many Hungarian voters are socially in, in, in so dire straits that they prefer what they know to jumping on the bandwagon of uh, an untested political promise of people they don't know. Uh, and that is his big advantage. He's, in a way, people reappeared on the stage of the now uh, bygone Hungarian opposition alliance, people extremely unpopular, discredited the idea of, of, of opposition and who later on more or less openly cooperated with the um, Fides Orban government to their own benefit. Uh, this is not really uh, the um, a good point to start if you wish to renew democracy and the rule of law in a country. So the opposition is primarily to blame for Orban's success. Of course, uh, elections were not manipulated, but they were not fair because there is no freedom of media anymore. The public TV is controlled by the government in Hungary. So the opposition, you, you would have never found them on, on public TV. There is no public debate. But even then, had they been there, their contradictions, their inbuilt contradictions among their own competing ideologies would have probably devastated their, their credibility uh, in the first place. Okay, so here we have two important elections that we've discussed. One, of course, the successful campaign of Orban to cement his control of Hungary. And we will see in the next couple of weeks what happens in France. And I think the important takeaway from this edition of the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast is that elections do matter. So if you are listening, if you are one of our French listeners, we have many of you there, make sure you go out and vote. Voting does change things. Thank you, Dr. Donner.
You're most welcome. And thank you to all of the listeners around the world. Bye-bye. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.